Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is now two weeks old with Russian forces entrenched, but apparently also bogged down in various parts of Ukraine. Last week, we asked if the war could have been avoided, and we also struggled to find an end game for Putin in Russia. This week, we ask fundamental questions about Russia's ability to stay the course and is the stranglehold on the flow of information that Putin has on the war in Russia working, or is he also struggling on the home front? In this edition, we break from our usual panel discussion and get two separate and important perspectives, one Ukrainian, and one Russian. First off, we speak with Zoya Sheftalovich, who is a contributing editor for Politico. She's worked in Brussels for Politico, as well as working for Choice magazine, and she has even been a foreign correspondent for 2SER. Zoya, thank you for joining us here on Fourth Estate. First off, you're Ukrainian. Tell us how you've been feeling over the last couple of weeks, and, and are you at all hopeful at this point for your country? To be honest, I... I started out extremely devastated and when the war was initially announced, um, my assumption was that it was going to be over pretty quickly. I thought that Kiev would probably fall within the first 24 to 48 hours and at that point it would all be over. I'm starting to feel both more and less hopeful now. The reason I'm more hopeful is because obviously Ukraine is putting up much more of a fight than any of us really saw coming. The level of unity and the level of resistance that I've seen has been quite incredible. And it has really been something that has been, I think no one really saw it coming. No, None of us externally saw it coming. Uh, I'm also more devastated as the days go on because Putin's brutality becomes more and more severe and the human cost of this becomes worse and worse. And that is, I mean, the scenes that we're seeing now of the maternity hospital in Mariupol being shelled of civilians just being completely annihilated, um, that has been horrific to watch from my relative well not relative but my safety in Australia it's been very difficult to watch those scenes and feel so helpless about it. There has been a lot of commentary that the Russian army doesn't seem to be in the the state that everybody assumed it would be in but do you think that could be underestimating what could be coming Ukraine's way? I think it probably is. And I think the main thing is that 
the army being in the state that it's in makes it more likely that more forceful and worse weapons will be used because if you can't win that that war in the initial short and sharp phase and if you're having to move to the um, cluster munitions if you're running out of the more precise uh, weaponry and you're having to use the cluster munitions and the carpet bombs um, that is really worrying and I think the other thing that people don't quite understand I think the biggest mistake people in the west politicians and and those who are watching the west have made is to look at the situation that is happening on the ground and view Putin from the perspective of someone who is acting in a rational Western way, whereas Putin has never, he has never been the sort of person who someone in the West can judge. So I think people look at it and go, oh, well, he can't possibly win and how long can he possibly keep going? This will force him to the negotiating table. Whereas I look at that scenario and I think he's getting more and more desperate and this is going to lead to more and more violence and and violence that is against the civilian population. I guess it's fair enough to say, though, that he really has to win this war, doesn't he, both for internal Russian purposes and his own survival, but also on the international stage. He's not going to want to be humiliated. He's not going to want to back down in any way. You've written a couple of things that we found really interesting. You said at one point that Putin's thinking of Ukraine is rooted in a 1991 mindset and he doesn't understand modern Ukraine or Ukrainians. Can you talk to us a little bit, a little bit about what you meant by that? So the reason I wrote that is because under the Soviet Union, Ukraine was essentially a, uh, a, a country within the USSR. It was its own country, but it didn't have a great deal of its own identity. So, for instance, I myself am Ukrainian. I was born in Ukraine. Uh, we all spoke, for the most part, Russian. A lot of Ukrainians did still speak Ukrainian, but Russian was considered the um, the language of choice. Anyone who spoke Ukrainian, particularly those who didn't speak Russian or those who spoke Russian with a Ukrainian accent, was considered something akin to a country bumpkin. Um, there was this Russian exceptionalism and um, Russian kind of lionization that happened in Russia and externally, where there was this idea that uh, your goal must always be to want to live in Russia because that's where all the money was. And I think that is where his conceptualization of Ukraine stayed. It's this idea of Ukraine as this nothing country that doesn't have its own people and barely has its own language. But I think things have really changed and they started changing in the early 2000s around about um, when, when Yushchenko came to power and when he implemented Ukrainian curriculum and started putting up statues to um, Ukrainian figures, started teaching in the curriculum about Ukrainian figures of the past. And since then, it has repeatedly, um, various points in time in Ukraine have really solidified that Ukrainian mindset. And I think some of those key points in time were, of course, the Maidan revolution, when um, the uh, Putin puppet that was in power in Kiev was replaced by Potroshenko in what was a popular uprising. Then in reaction to that, after Putin pushed into Crimea and Donbass under the guise of local separatists, but what everyone knows was in fact just Putin's um, own forces propping those up, Ukrainians really at that point started becoming, um, having a sense of national pride, national identity, but also 
started changing the way they viewed Russia as well. There was this kind of confusion in a way about what Putin would and wouldn't do. And he was funding lots of politicians in Ukraine. Um, so there were popular uh, and, and large Ukrainian um, politicians who were, in fact, Putin puppets. And it was a little bit of a confusing thing for people, you know, were they Ukrainians or, or, or what were they? But in response to that Crimean war and the Donbass, um, the Donbass so-called People's Republics, that is when we really saw Ukrainians come together. And I think that really culminated in the election of Vladimir Zelensky, who came to power in 2019 as a sort of a TV star, a really popular TV star who had been on this show called Servant of the People, where he played a uh, anti-corruption, he, he played a history teacher who went viral in a YouTube video going on a rant about corruption and then was made the president of Ukraine. And there was a lot of art imitating life where then on the back of the popularity of that TV show and the sentiment that that TV show was um, was plugging into, they then as a result of that, Zelensky was elected on this anti-corruption platform. And certainly since he came to power, he has been um, on a bit of a campaign to get rid of graft and get rid of corruption in his country. Now, he's not perfect, by no means is he perfect, and there have been some difficult moments and certainly some of his policies have not necessarily been particularly popular or, or necessarily the right way to go but as a general statement he has certainly been cracking down on corruption and on Russian influence in Ukraine and I think that was really the thing that Putin couldn't stand and so I think Putin was viewing Ukraine as a as, as a nothing as a place that didn't have an, an identity a place where you could replace the government and no one would notice no one would care people would just go about their daily business so I think when he rolled his troops into Ukraine now, his view was that they would just lay down their arms and let it happen. And I think the, the fact that the Ukrainians have really fought back with such significant opposition has shocked him and the world. Uh, well, I, I guess that analysis kind of raises two questions in my mind. Um, firstly, I mean, the, the, the way Putin has put, put it forward, there's his analysis is that when you look at it historically, the difference between Russia and Ukraine simply isn't there. Uh, now, in his mind, of course, that negates Ukraine as a sovereign state. So, I mean, I'd like to get your comment on what you think are the links, the, 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 the positive links, if you like, between Russia and Ukraine. Historically, there are obviously strong links between Russia and Ukraine. So in terms of language, many, many Ukrainians speak Russian. Um, for many, many Ukrainians, it's something like 40%. Russian is actually their first language. Mm -hmm. So there's a definite linguistic link there. And historically, as part of the Soviet Union, as two parts of the Soviet Union, um, Ukraine and Russia were sort of sister, sister countries way um, with Moscow the place of power the seat of power and where most of the uh, most of the government was but still sort of a two sisters in a in a larger kind of um, whole which was the Soviet Union mm -hmm. and certainly they have a shared history the Red Army um, is a hugely important element of um, Soviet uh, Soviet symbolism and and the fact that Ukrainians and, and Russians fought together in the Second World War in the Army, and that was a really important element of their joint history and of their symbolism. So they viewed themselves as brothers and sisters in arms. 
Um, so there is a great deal of similarity and a great deal of fraternity there. But at the same time, there has always been a strong Ukrainian nationalism and patriotism that existed within Ukraine. It's not accurate to say that Ukraine and, and, and Russia were one or that their people were always one. Um, if you go back to the time, Tsarist times, there were already Ukrainian nationalists who were fighting for independence that continued throughout um, the, the Second World War when you had figures like uh, Bandera, who was a well-known Ukrainian nationalist who was fighting for independence from all of the countries that were trying to step in and take a chunk of Ukraine. So there's always been an individual identity of Ukrainianness and Ukrainian nationalists that existed prior to and during the Soviet Union. Uh, and once Ukraine declared independence, I mean, Ukraine declared independence after a vote in which a vast majority of Ukrainians voted to split from the USSR. So Ukraine became independent before the USSR actually finally fell apart. Uh, and, and I remember those times. I remember that vote. I remember the way people felt. They felt strongly about the fact that Ukraine ought to be its own um, country. And so I think this revisionist history that Putin has is a very, uh, it's a very patronizing and imperialistic view of Ukraine, which excludes the idea that Ukrainians have always wanted to have, have wanted their own country and particularly have been fighting for their own country um, in, in the last few decades mm. since the fall of the Soviet Union. And so just in relation to picking up on something that you said earlier as well in terms of the, uh, the you know, the influences, we've talked about Ru Russian influence. Are you at all concerned or have you been at all concerned about the influence of the United States within Ukraine, particularly in the, the Zelensky era? I think the US always has an interest in propping up democracies around the world. And I think there's a particular interest in doing that in a region where you're next door to a dictatorship that is a hostile force, and that is the case with Putin's Russia. Uh, that said, look, I think I have a, a strong support for democracy and for self-determination in the case of Ukraine. And so I think if, if the situation is that Zelensky has advisors or, or has assistance from the EU, from the US, um, that to me is less of a problem than the fact that Putin is actively declaring war on the country. And I think the thing with Ukraine is that since 2014, it has had the desire to join the EU and to join NATO as an element of its, uh, of its constitution. It's something that is very popular within Ukraine, and that is a goal, a stated goal that they've had for years. And in terms of that influence from the US, look, to me, it isn't an issue in the same way that the influence of Russia is an issue because of the different goals of the influence. So the goal of US influence is very different in this circumstance to the goal. And, 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 and you're not you're not worried at all that Ukraine is being used as a proxy by the United States to fight a broader war with Russia. I think Ukraine is being used as a proxy in in this case by Putin's forces. So I think Putin's forces going into Ukraine is effectively fighting a war against the West and against democracy. So mm -hmm. I think it's already inevitably being used as a proxy. And the outcome that I am interested in is an ongoing democracy and Ukraine that is able to 
uh, have its own territory and have its own self-determination. And there's really only one side that is looking after that interest. Okay. So, look, at the end of the day, I mean, all wars are about taking and defending territory, but they're also about information. And where this war is, is, is being played out in a social media age, you know, nobody has any doubt Ukraine is winning that social media war and Russia is losing it monumentally. Does it matter, really, given that there is literally no chance that the West, NATO and the US in particular, will come to, to Ukraine's aid in, uh, in a more direct way than they already have? I think it absolutely matters. And I think actually the West has come to Ukraine's aid in many concrete ways. I think the fact that weapons are being shipped into Ukraine by the by the ton from the US, from the EU, is hugely consequential. The amount of money that's going into Ukraine is hugely consequential. And I think that is all made possible by the fact that the Ukrainians have been playing a magnificent um, game of chess when it comes to social media. And in fact, I think it's also clear from the warnings that the US was giving And I remember when they started making these warnings of an imminent invasion, people were a bit confused and were saying, oh, why why is the US doing this? This is quite extraordinary. Why are they declassifying this information? Didn't make any sense. But I think what, what the US recognized, what Ukraine has recognized, is that it's really important to take away Uh, some of Russia's ability to obfuscate and confuse um, people in terms of what is actually happening, because that's when people switch off because they're too confused to figure out who's in the right. In this case, the fact that Ukraine is able to effectively preempt Russia's attempts at at false flag information, the fact that they're able to get information out there about things like attacks on their nuclear um, power plants, that is super important. The fact that they're able to get images out of these besieged cities like uh, Mariupol, where you've got pictures of hospitals and streets completely destroyed, people completely destroyed, um, civilians being evacuated, being fired upon. That is all really important because what it does is it stops Putin from being able to continue to obfuscate the problem. It stops the opportunity for him to then recover on the other end of this and say, well, war's over. How about you start buying our gas and oil again? So I think it's really important for Ukraine to maintain that pressure. And of course, it's also really important from the perspective of morale, because what we're seeing is this overwhelming image of Ukraine taking down tanks, taking down airplanes, taking down helicopters. And I think that is also very helpful because what it says is, hey, we might actually win this. So if you send us lots and lots of weapons and lots and lots of money, uh, you might actually help us win it. And I think that was a very important thing that Ukraine did, rather than make it appear as if Putin winning was inevitable, which would mean that what's the point of of sending money? What's the point of sending weapons to Ukraine? They're just going to end up in Putin's hands. I think that has really been impactful from that perspective. In terms of the Russians, look, for Putin and for the Russian Russian state-run media, the important people who they are trying to get their information to are, are Russians themselves. And so in some ways, the fact that Russians have been cut off from Facebook, Twitter, etc. While it has had the positive effect of reducing some of those avenues 
for um, false propaganda from the Russian side, it has also meant that the Russian people are being cut off from information. But, but think- they also have access to VPN. I mean, there are modern Ukrainians, but there are also many modern Russians, and and they are arming themselves now with VPNs. Do you, do you think um, you know that 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 message of what is actually happening in Ukraine is getting through to uh, at least a proportion of the Russian population, and that that will make a difference? I think it is getting through to a proportion of a population and particularly younger people are more likely to access this information. But I think as we've seen from reports in the New York Times and elsewhere from my own reporting, it's very obvious that even people who are being told firsthand uh, by relatives in Ukraine what is happening on the ground are refusing to believe it because they've been so heavily influenced by the um, by the propaganda that the Russians are putting out. And so I think some of these people, they just, the people who are searching for the information might find it, but there are a lot of people who are willfully blind to it, who don't want this information because they've been essentially given this propagandized version of what's happening, this idea that Ukraine is run by Nazis. And I think the impact of that can't really be overstated. A lot of people will be speaking and are speaking, I, I've got family myself, who when you ask them what is happening, why they think Russia has declared war on Ukraine, they claim that it's a denazification effort when we know that that is not at all the case. So I think, yes, the information uh, is, is out there should the Russians start looking for it, and they probably can get around firewalls in the same way that Chinese people um, can access VPNs to be able to get around the blocks on Facebook in China. But nonetheless, a lot of people don't, want to do that they're not looking to do that and it's one thing if these things keep coming up on your Facebook feed and you can't help but see it it's another thing you have to go out there and find this information yourself and I think that active finding of the information is much more um, it's, it's a much bigger task for these Russians. Mm. So yeah, we've run out of time so we'll leave it there but I thank you very very much for, uh, for, for being on the show today. It's my pleasure. Now let's speak with Leonid Ragozin. Leonid is a Russian based in Riga in Latvia. He has been a freelance journalist who's worked previously for the BBC. And not only is he an insightful and thoughtful journalist, he also wrote The Lonely Planet Guides for Moscow and Ukraine. So obviously he knows both and loves both. So Leonid, thank you very, very much for joining us here today on Fourth Estate. You wrote for Al Jazeera on February 24th, a very insightful and nuanced piece about the war. Um, But we're curious because you also asked a big question that you didn't quite answer about Putin. And what you wrote was, on the face of it, Putin's move appears irrational. After two weeks of this war, have you formed an opinion about Putin's thinking? Uh, Well, I'm uh, I'm more inclined to to think that um, he is acting uh, irrationally. Um, if you if you think about uh, Russia's uh, long terms uh, long term objectives and uh, national interests, because what he is doing essentially is uh, uh, bombing, um, leveling uh, cities in eastern Ukraine, uh, primarily Russian speaking cities, in uh, um, killing people who live in. Uh, uh, in the streets, named after Russian, uh, great Russian writer, uh, writers and Russian cities, 
um, places, places, uh, uh, streets in Kharkov uh, named like Moskovsky, uh, Moscow Prospect or uh, Chernyshevsky Street. Uh, so uh, it, uh, from uh, internal Russian point of view, uh, it sounds uh, not so much uh, counterproductive as, uh, as uh, suicidal, as a political suicide, because uh, this thing do register with Russians, uh, not to mention the fact that uh, millions and millions of uh, Russians and uh, pretty much everyone in, in, in those Russian-speaking cities in Eastern Ukraine, they have relatives and close friends in Russia. Uh, so it takes time to sink in in Russia, of course, and uh, the Kremlin is doing its best to uh, control information about um, what is happening, what is going on in Eastern Ukraine. Uh, but uh, it it cannot it cannot last for long. Um, so so there is there is this uh, irrational aspect, but uh, at the same time, uh, Putin is is uh, working towards an objective, and uh, the, the objective is uh, to uh, to to get Ukraine uh, sign a very uh, humiliating uh, peace accord. And if he achieves this, if uh, Ukraine swallows it, if the West swallows it, then yes, in hindsight, we uh, could, to an extent, call him rational. But uh, uh, for now, it looks to me as a political suicide. And do you think that there are anybody, uh, there are any people around him at the moment who are looking at what we are seeing, this irrational behaviour, and saying that to themselves or to him that they're concerned? Well, uh, nobody knows, in fact, uh, because uh, we are talking about a very uh, small, close-knit, uh, non-transparent, extremely non-transparent group of people. Uh, and uh, we uh, don't know much about the um, internal psychological dynamics within this group of people. Whether uh, whether it is um, uh, Putin who is making those decisions and everybody else is afraid to uh, tell him uh, that that he is not right, or whether this is uh, this is a case uh, of um, collective bout of um, insanity, or collective bout of madness. Um, from what we saw at, at the uh, memorable Security Council session. Uh, at the start of this war, uh, it seems like um, some of the members of the you know, close circle, uh, people like the head of foreign intelligence, uh, Narishkin, and also Prime Minister Mishustin, uh, they were not probably entirely on board with Putin. They were wavering. Um, how it um, plays out in uh, behind uh, closed doors, behind the curtains, uh, is, is unclear. Um, I'm sure that uh, if we uh, speak about uh, broader uh, swathes of the of the Russian elite, uh, that uh, many many people are extremely concerned uh, about uh, their their personal future, about the future of their assets in the country, which is uh, now being um, subject uh, uh, to to extreme uh, thermonuclear sanctions. Uh, and um, uh, I, I'm sure that uh, discontent is is growing within the elite. Whether it will lead to uh, to uh, any um, kind of open 
um, uh, open attacks on Putin uh, or, or any any open manifestations of discontent? Uh, that's a million dollar question. I've been watching what you uh, write and what you tweet in particular, Leonard, for a long time. Um, and uh, uh, I think it's fair enough to say that uh, you as well have recognised the two kind of narratives that have the competing narratives over why this conflict has actually um, happened. The first, of course, is that the West did not listen to Russia and that it pressured it with NATO expansion. Um, and the counter view is that Putin wanted to return to a more expansive idea of Russia. Uh, some, of course, have expanded that to even mean that he wanted to uh, reinvent the, the USSR. Has this, has what's happened in the last two weeks clarified in your mind what is driving him and this conflict? Well, I'm still not sure that um, uh, expansion is, is his uh, main uh, motivation. If we look at uh, Russian demands um, at the peace negotiations with Ukraine, um, and then the demand is um, that Ukraine recognize uh, the independence of uh, Donetsk and uh, the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk Republic and uh, the Russian occupation of uh, Crimea in 2014. Um, these are these are chunks of Ukraine, but these are fairly fairly small chunks of Ukraine, and uh, um, they 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 were uh, occupied in 2014. Um, in the case of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk uh, republics, uh, uh, of course, uh, Putin and the Kremlin are talking about uh, the full territory of Luhansk and Donetsk regions. Uh, and uh, much of the territories were uh, controlled by uh, Ukraine in um, uh, uh, by, by the time this war started. Uh, but even so, uh, we we're not talking about uh, we're not talking about the occupation of Ukraine. We're not even talking about uh, the occupation of Eastern Russian-speaking part of Ukraine. Uh, not about the um the new russia the Novorossiya project uh, as envisaged by uh, many russian um, nationalists at the beginning of this war um so uh, I, I don't think uh, in in practice uh, um uh, it is uh, the the uh, the way putin moves is consistent with the idea of putin uh, you know trying to uh, restore the soviet union or to uh, occupy the whole of Ukraine. Uh, what I think is the most important is the uh, logic of escalation uh, and um, and what uh, political scientists call external legitimization. The source, the main source of Putin's legitimacy um, during the last 10 years and especially now is uh, his conflict uh, with the West. And uh, now, this conflict was uh, um, escalating as ever since uh, 2014, or even earlier, since uh, uh, since uh, uh, the war in Georgia in 2008. And from Putin's point of view, the escalation started uh, when, uh, in the late 90s, um, uh, the 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 West, so the the United States, and its uh, European allies. Uh, decided to uh, expand, uh, to start uh, a massive expansion of uh, NATO uh, towards the Russian borders. So uh, I think this, this logic of uh, escalation, uh, which um, uh, many, uh, many in the West uh, dismiss, 
uh, because uh, it's, it's quite obviously that the escalation on the Russian side is is uh, disproportionate uh, to to what the West is doing, especially especially now when uh, when Putin, uh, in response uh, to to what he sees as uh, hostile moves by the West, as the expansion of NATO, NATO uh, he starts actually murdering people and uh, bombing and bombing cities. Uh, but uh, still, it is the logic of escalation that brought to this uh, collision. And uh, uh, from uh, Putin's uh, point of view, from the Kremlin's point of view, it is this uh, escalatory uh, buildup in the last 10, 20 uh, or more years uh, that uh, has brought us to the collision point. So in that sense, has the West actually misread Putin post-1991? Is or is there an alternate explanation that, that there was something inherent in the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, which would inevitably lead to these kind of, you know, in a sense, territorial disputes? Um, I think uh, the the fundamental issue uh, at um, that, that lies uh, um, that uh, underpins this whole situation. Uh, is um, is the fact that uh, in the 1990s um, the West uh, had a chance to uh, integrate Russia, uh, to uh, maybe prioritize the integration of Russia just because of its uh, uh, size and uh, not not to mention its nuclear weapons, so which which uh, created a potential danger to the whole world and. Uh, and we can see it now that Putin um, basically threatens uh, nuclear war uh, to the West and to, to, to the rest of the world. Um, so maybe it was not so wise to, to play the um, uh, salami tactics uh, by cutting off uh, Russia's uh, uh, former uh, allies and neighbors and ushering them into, into Western uh, Euro-Atlantic structures uh, while um, essentially alienating Russia and uh, not working on its integration. Uh, most importantly, uh, not offering uh, to the Russian society this beacon of, uh, of European integration, which, uh, which is basically the, the only reason why uh, other East European nations are now democracies and not um, um, authoritarian states like, like Russia. This uh, framework uh, that comes uh, along with uh, Euro-Atlantic integration, particularly with the integration into the European Union. Uh, it is crucial in, in holding back uh, Putinist, Putinoid forces uh, in countries like uh, Hungary and uh, Poland, which we can see uh, have made uh, certain steps towards, uh, towards Putinism, towards authoritarianism. Uh, but uh, it is it is this uh, uh, legal uh, rule of law framework imposed on them by uh, by Euro Atlantic integration uh, that uh, prevents them from uh, becoming uh, something hundred uh, percent akin to Russia. So, given given all of that, do you think that if uh, if the Ukrainian President Zelensky were to accept? in some meta-universe, if he were to accept this offer from Russia that U Ukraine declares itself a neutral state, that it, it changes its constitution and declares that it will never join NATO, uh, that that will be enough? And is, is, it, is it a believable offer? Well, it's hard to say uh, because uh, we, uh, we can see with Putin, you know, with uh, each uh, 
uh, escalatory step uh, or what he sees as escalatory, escalatory step by the West, uh, he doubles down. He, um, he has this, uh, uh, you know, psychology of uh, uh, 1990s Pittsburgh gangster where uh, you always need to show that you are uh, more insane, uh, you are more suicidal uh, than the other part. Mm. And uh, in this game, Putin will uh, always be winning. I mean, in the in the game of chicken, uh, he is the person who will um, who will never blink. He will uh, go all the way until until he collides with the uh, yeah. with the enemy. I think that uh, in terms of uh, agreeing with Putin, in terms of what many um, hawkish personalities in the West uh, call uh, appeasement, uh, the Probably the main element is that uh, nobody has tried, and and of course uh, uh, the decision uh, by uh, by the Ukrainian government to uh, not to uh, succumb to Russia's pressure, not to uh, implement Minsk agreements uh, uh, the the way Russia saw, and to put up a fight, um, it was obviously uh, backed. Uh, by uh, by Ukrainian society, but uh, uh, the the wisdom of this decision um, is not clear to me uh, at this moment. Uh, I mean, history will show whether it was right decision or, or wrong. Uh, but with uh, with you know agreeing to Putin's demand, with uh, um, signing um, uh, some kind of agreement uh, with with Putin. Um, the main issue is that nobody tried. Uh, people just uh, say that it is an, an appeasement of the dictator, that his appetites will grow. Uh, but, um, well, um, now we have all those people dying there and uh, uh, the West is not in position to help them properly. Uh, because uh, it it cannot uh, it cannot send uh, NATO armies or uh, NATO aviation uh, to confront Russia because of the threat of nuclear war. So in that case, uh, maybe maybe it's uh, the, the best solution would be to uh, to find an off ramp for, to for Putin, uh, and that of course involves um, a major. Uh, humiliating uh, compromise for Ukraine. Hmm. And, and, and as you say, that would also include giving up uh, the Donbass and giving up Crimea if officially, you know, in terms of international law. Um, just Can we just turn our mind to the, the, the issue of sanctions for a moment? Because these are, these are as you call them, thermonuclear sanctions, um, you know, five times more extensive than those ever placed on Iran, for example. Um, do they have the capacity at all uh, to change his direction? Or, you know, is, is he a man who, again, as you say, doesn't blink, he's, that he's just going to keep on going, that he will not react to the sanctions? Well, I think uh, in terms of um, uh, sanctions against Russia, the, um, uh, the main factor is time. If this um, uh, military campaign uh, and uh, these sanctions... Uh, last uh, too long, uh, they will uh, start hitting the West and the rest of the world. And um, in many ways, we have seen it already with uh, the rising uh, prices on gas, 
uh, and oil. And uh, then uh, the next thing that is going to happen is, uh, is very high prices for uh, wheat because uh, both um, Ukraine and Russia are major um, exporters of wheat. Um, so uh, there'll be a, the there'll be an impact for for the entire world economy. It may even lead to to a global recession. Um, so uh, if uh, if the West, uh, if Biden administration um, achieves uh, its goal of stopping Russia really fast, uh, then uh, then yes, this this uh, this strategy is is working. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Russia sustains the impact and continues its, its murderous campaign in Ukraine, the military campaign, um, then no, uh, it, it didn't work. Uh, so uh, I, I believe in the next um, few days or weeks, uh, we will see um, uh, which, which, which is true. Mm. And it's not just the sanctions. There are you know, major corporations and other groups that are pulling out. A lot of commentary, you know, much of it's silly, that um, McDonald's pulling out is going to harden views in Russia. I mean, I'm sure Putin doesn't really care if there's no McDonald's or Netflix or Apple operating in Russia. But is that hurting the West's ability to connect with everyday Russians? Uh, well, I guess it, uh, it it hurts the Russians. And um, uh, this this particular issue the, of, uh, of all those Western shops and businesses pulling out of Russia, the kind of businesses that uh, Russians were familiar with, um, it's uh, from my point of view, it may be a positive uh, because uh, you have this um, conformist pro-Putin majority in Russia, which is basically in- endorsing its uh, uh, his pol- uh, policies, but uh, it is endorsing um, the- those policies not wholeheartedly, but um, through political apathy. Um, so. And maybe it it would be a, a good way of uh, uh, waking up Russian society from its political lethargy and uh, uh, making people think that uh, uh, their inaction, uh, their political um, um, conformity, uh, it it has a consequences. Uh, and if they they are not interested in politics, then politics will. Uh, enter um, every flat and, and uh, house in the city, in the country. Uh, so that is that is what is happening, and uh, this is this is a tangible impact uh, that uh, people will be feeling um, at least in the large cities, uh, absolutely immediately, uh, as as um, all those McDonald's uh, outlets and uh, uh, Zara shops are um, closing down and. Uh, um, and there is no way for uh, local suppliers to to fill the gap. It's a sudden return to the early 1990s, and uh, people will not appreciate it, and people will be asking questions. And in relation to the media, um, you know, what, what remained of uh, independent media in Russia is or has closed down. I see Medusa is still operating, but... Um, you know, they preferred to close rather than comply with uh, the Kremlin's edict that they 
they tell its version of this war. What's your take on the media in Russia? Russia? What, what lies ahead? Can that small sliver of what was independent media ever revive? Well, what what we have uh, what we had last week is uh, is that the um, Russian Parliament uh, has adopted the law which essentially criminalizes the profession of journalists. Um, people cannot cover their war uh, for the simple reason that they cannot even call this this war. Uh, they cannot use the the word war in in the context of what the Kremlin calls the. A special military operation in in Ukraine, uh, and um, uh, objective reporting of uh, the bombardment and uh, of all the civilians that have been killed by Russian uh, bombs and uh, artillery fire, um, the the Russian authorities consider it as uh, fake news. And uh, as of last week, it is now punishable by very uh, lengthy prison sentences, up to fifteen years uh, in prison. Uh, so, uh, in inside Russia, the profession of uh, journalist uh, is, is, is essentially being killed, and even foreign journalists are moving out of Russia now. However, uh, the uh, the hunger for information in Russian society is, is going to grow. And um, from what I know, from what I hear in, in Moscow, and from what I'm seeing on social networks, uh, which are abandoned now in Russia, but uh, Russians are still on through VPN. So people are learning about VPN. People are accessing um, the Russian independent media outlets that have been uh, recently banned uh, by the Kremlin. Uh, and um, the audience of uh, those outlets is, is growing according to, uh, according to their management. Um, there is uh, there is a hectic uh, volatile situation now as uh, hundreds and hundreds of uh, journalists who worked for independent outlets uh, uh, have left Russia uh, hurriedly um, without visas uh, for Western countries. So they uh, ended up in places like um, uh, Armenia, Georgia or Turkey where they uh, can access where they can come without uh, visas. Uh, then on top of it, uh, uh, Visa and Mastercard uh, uh, decided uh, to uh, to stop working with Russian banks, and that left all those uh, Russians who fled uh, persecution in Russia, and particularly journalists. Uh, it left them stranded uh, in in foreign countries uh, without any cash because they they cannot access their Russian accounts. Um, so um, it, it doesn't, of course, uh, help uh, uh, those independent uh, outlets to, to function normally from, from their new bases abroad. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, once it is all uh, settled in some way or another, um, then, then people will uh, double down and they will find access to uh, broader audiences in, in Russia. And, uh, all those uh, outlets, uh, they, they do matter and they, they know how to work with Russian audiences uh, um, to, 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 to a large extent better than, uh, was, uh, than, than uh, Western-backed, Western-sponsored uh, media outlets. 
Leonard, that's been absolutely fascinating. I thank you very, very much for your time and, uh, and wish you the best of luck. Okay, thank you for having me. Thank you, Monica. And on that note, Leonard Rogozin, thank you for joining us here on Fourth Estate. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk media, politics and, of course, everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Marlene Even and my executive producer, Anthony Dockle. I'm Monica Attard, and thank you for listening.